Manifesto. You can't eat your cake and have it too, says my boyfriend and Ted Kaczynski, turning cliches into bombs. My boyfriend, who is not the Unabomber, loves me from 1,300 miles away. We dream over the phone, count the days until our next visit. At Whole Foods, before Valentine's Day, I buy a red velvet cake I'll eat alone. A man walks out with a double dozen red roses wrapped in cellophane. I miss my boyfriend. Can I eat my cake and have it too? Transposed verbs are what got Kaczynski caught, his use of language, his arcane mind. But he wasn't wrong. What good is having a cake if you can't eat it? That clumsy phrase comes straight out of Middle English, straight from my Valentine's red mouth. He long-distance laughs as I puzzle the meaning, but isn't that the point? Love is a kind of syntax, a soft rhyme, prison time. I'm eating my cake and having it too. That was January Gill O'Neill reading her poem Manifesto from our January-February issue. Hello, welcome to the American Poetry Review podcast. I'm Elizabeth Scanlon. I'm here today with Hannah Galman. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Um, Stephen Kleinman, who is usually here with us, is out today, but that's okay. Hannah and I will hold it down, and we will we'll find Stephen again next time. Um, it is, gosh, it's already February. Here we are, February 2024. <sighs> a, a, a place in time I never really thought about. But <laughs> Time keeps moving. Um, uh, we are right after the AWP conference, which I was just telling Hannah for the first time in many, many years, I did not go to this year. Um, and I'm, I'm so sorry to all of you that I missed in Kansas City. Um, you missed the barbecue mostly. I know, right? I actually did live in Kansas City for oh, did you? one year, one year, many years ago in the 90s. Um, I was there in, what year was that? It was 1994? Or five, I want to say. Sure. Suffice to say, it was 30 years ago, so not... I'm sure it's much different Yeah, it's now. much different now, I'm sure, but the barbecue is eternal. It, yes, it perseveres. Uh, <laughs> that's right. They have free public transit now, did you know that? Oh, Kansas really? City. Shout out to Kansas City. Right for on, Kansas City. Well, of course, and they won the Super Bowl last yeah, night, so well. that was, you know... I'm not a football person, so, but, you know, kudos to them. Congrats. Um, but but uh, to my original point, I feel the need to confess that I was not at AWP this year because I actually got COVID uh, right before. A bummer. A real bummer. And, like, honestly, just shocking because I have had... I mean, shouldn't be shocked. We all know what it's the, out. It's out there. We all know what what the deal is. But I mean, you know, as someone who had it in 2020, pre vaccine availability, mm -hmm. um, you know, was spooked enough by that experience that I have had every booster shot known to man sure. since then. I mean, I've probably had like six shots or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I was quite surprised. Yeah. To uh, to wind up sick again, but I'm okay now. Yeah. Was it milder? It thanks was, to the it was the vaccine. It, yes, it was certainly milder, and I took Paxlovid. Oh. Um, so I mean, it did like you know resolve itself within a week, but um, 
really, yeah, really kind of spooked me. Sure. Um, and, you know, out of an abundance of yeah. caution, stayed, stayed off of away an airplane. Away from the throngs of away people. away from the throngs. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so suffice to say, I'm very sorry to everyone that I missed at the conference. Um, but, yeah, I do wonder. I wonder about AWP and, like, the whole industry of it. I mean, without like, you know, without casting shade upon it, really just like this experience of like having to like pull the plug on my own trip kind of got me thinking about like, it is so many people in one place at one time. Like it's gotten so huge, Mm -hmm. even in the time that, you know, I've been going to it. What is your estimate? I like when you first were going, how many people do you think? And in the last few years, how many people do you think? I mean, I think it has at least quadrupled. I'm sure there are statistics out there somewhere. We're going from Elizabeth's lived experience. We're just just spitballing here. (laughs) But I mean, I I think it is at least quadrupled. Sure. Because the first time that I went, I want to say was maybe 2000 two or three Mm -hmm. um and you know it was it was a conference like it was a couple thousand people yeah but now I think they routinely get about 10,000 people and that is just wild to me yeah and I wonder like well you you tell me Hannah you you've gone right once once singularly in 2019 in Portland Oregon oh that was a big one it seemed big but I, I don't know um yeah I have no reference, but um, yeah, it seemed big. It seemed like everyone wanted to eat a voodoo donut. Well, sure. And, um, <laughs> there's, right, there's always the tourism yeah, aspect yeah, yeah, of it yeah. as well. Like, like, the, like when it's in a good city, right? You know, or something like that. That's that's part of the fun. But I mean, did you enjoy it? Like, as a, were you still a student? I then, was. Or, yeah. It was my last semester mm-hmm. of undergrad, um, and yeah, I went with like a group of other undergrads from Iowa and um we like had some responsibilities or whatever to like man a table for whatever whatever but mostly we were like free to be around and about um I had a good time I think that I would will do it differently when I attend another one um I think I mean I I went to a lot of the like conference panels and Mm -hmm discussions and things like that I had a great time you know going through all of the those sorts of offerings but I think I've heard like talking to people since then that a lot of the like value for them is actually not at Mm -hmm. at the convention center but what happens sort of at these off-site events is like the reason they continue to go back and back and back to AWP um and I did some of that but less than I maybe should have and Right. I mean, the offsite events are have definitely um, become, you know, sort of a, a fringe festival of sure. their own, right? Um, and and I super enjoy that. I mean, the last few years, um, APR has had the delight of collaborating with uh, with Adroit and Kenyan and Pleiades on doing some yeah. like offsite readings that have been um, just super fun, so well attended, like really like energetic and sure, um, you know succeed in bringing people together in a way that like no one organization can usually do like even in their hometown right like Mm -hmm. you can't um uh I mean you could but it's 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 many hands light work right where you when you're collaborating that way it's it's a nice and also uh, an influx of people of your target audience is like they're there they're looking for something to do yes so it's going to be well attended totally I mean I guess I don't mean 
I guess my my qualms with it, um, which you know many have commented on before, but it's like it is such an expensive undertaking, yeah. right? Like even if you're mainly going to offsites, and even if you're you know like sharing a you know a room or a house or something with other people, like it's a really expensive trip to take, mm-hmm. and I just I I always think about that, especially with our poets, you know, sure. um, that like I I'm. I have qualms about like who feels excluded from that experience and like how we could do it better, you know? Um, I mean, certainly there are other kinds of festivals, like there's the Brooklyn book festival and there's like the new Orleans poetry festival and many other like regional offerings. Um, I just, I don't, I don't have an agenda here. I'm just like wondering about like the future of AWP and, and like how it can, be more accessible and more, um, less alienating. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I always, um, you know, my role at it when I go is mostly like in the book fair, right? Like I'm very much like parked. Yeah. I'm parked at a booth and I'm there just to like talk to people. Um, and that's cool. Uh, but I, I just, I, I wonder, yeah, I just wonder if it's like really, you know, serving people. Right. Especially, I mean, the young poets and uh, and yeah. writers that I know um, sort of I hold it as a really important thing to do to like network mm-hmm. and and meet the editors of these journals that are trying to get published in or meet right. the people who run these presses who they're trying to get their book published by. And like right. if you can't even get in the door, mm-hmm. um, you know, it affects who is getting published and right. because those personal relationships do factor in. So anyway, our um uh, our January February issue is still uh, is is out there in the world, um, marching around, marching around. <laughs> um, nice segue. <laughs> um, uh, I I as I always say, there is so much to love here. But um, I have been returning uh, again in my own contemplation of it, especially to the Philip Metris essay in here, um, which is called What Form Can Hold, the Pantoum as Vessel of Through Trauma. And I just, I mean, I really recommend this uh, essay to everyone uh, because I think that, and this is also something that I'm just always looking for in essays, I feel like it satisfies like sort of both well, there's more than two, but both audiences in my mind in terms of like people who are looking to uh, the articles in the magazine as pedagogical sources, right? Mm -hmm. As like having something like relevant to their classroom practice or, you know, to their thinking about how to teach writing. Um, And the other audience that I uh, am always sort of holding in my mind, which is the, the poet, the writer, the person who is you know, writing their own work and reckoning with um, ideas of, uh, you know, of how to uh, grow and expand, right? Um, and I just, I, I feel like this essay does does both of those things really beautifully because it's, um, you know, largely talking about or, or wrestling with the idea of, like, why form? Like, why sure. write in form at all? Uh, just, just, to, just to pull from this essay, uh, there are a couple of... Uh, statements in here that I that have stayed with me Um, let me just read this one passage for you this is Philip Metris writing form is the term 
for that patterning of repetition, that homing in. A Russian poet once said to me, quoting another Russian writer, my homeland is Russian literature. Those of us in diaspora, in exile, or alienated in all the ways that we can be unhoused, still long for home and homeland. How often have we found in a poem or story a home that the world did not provide? Literature can be forms of home, forming home, homing form. Which, I mean, aside from just being exquisitely written, yes. very well said, um, has just provided so much food for thought for me, just like as, as a kernel of like what all happens in this essay. <clears throat> um, do you do you write in form ever, Hannah? Do you find that I, to be da- a thing? I dabble? You dabble, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever written a pantoom, but I I uh, have not written a pantoom yeah, either. I, but it's it's a fun one. Yeah. It sounds fun. Um, yeah. It's I always there's it's like a cousin to a villanelle. No, Where yes, yes. I mean, it has it, it is focusing on you know whole line repetition, right? As opposed to end words or or rhyme scheme, uh, though those things can appear as well. But it's it's more about like the um, the reprise of of a whole line or phrase. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, this this article is kind of inspiring me to try one. Try honestly, one. try one. <laughs> um, uh, because as a person who does not tend, like, I don't tend to write in form a sure. lot, um, but I I certainly have um, done a little bit here and there. I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, of our era, like the golden shovel, the yeah. form that Terence Hayes uh, invented, uh, is one of. I mean, I just think it's a brilliant exercise in in using your source material and paying, uh, you know, paying homage to uh, something that's already there, sure. like in the in the room with you, yeah, in the brain with you, yeah. um, that has informed and and formed your own work, right? Yeah. Right. Yes. Also, Jericho Brown's duplex, Absolutely. I think about too, which is another one that's like whole lines. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is that that is an incredible feat that he's done Absolutely. because you read those poems for the first time and and you don't even notice mm-hmm. that like next to each other is basically the same line. Right. I don't know how he he did that, but yeah, no, it's really. I mean, it feels like it really feels like magic, right? Mm-hmm. When you have. Uh, when you have a form at all that that becomes seamless, but especially an invented form, like I just think is so, uh, it's so admirable, it's so inspiring to mm-hmm. see someone succeed in in that bit of magic, right? Um, uh, also, I mean, in this in this issue as well, actually, we have um, Dorothy Chan has a series of her triple sonnets in here, which, as far as I know, um, I actually I didn't I did not look this up. We are speaking <laughs> unverified, <stuff>. yeah, unverified. <laughs> but I think the triple sonnet is 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 Dorothy's invention. Uh, it's certainly the form in which she writes most of her poems, um, and is is so cool. Like really. Um, puts puts forth the challenge and then succeeds at it right yeah. you know so we're going to take a little sidebar here and define some of the terms that we were bandying about in our conversation about forms uh starting with the pantoum 
of course, the Pantoum has a fascinating history that you can read all about in Philip Metris's essay in our January-February issue. Um, before, you know, just specificity's sake, it is a poem of any length composed of four-line stanzas in which the second and fourth lines of each stanza serve as the first and third lines of the next stanza. The last line of a pantoum is, is also often the, the same as the first. So, yes, so it, I mean, it's a, it's a very sort of meticulous repetition. Um, we also mentioned the duplex, uh, which is a form invented, a new form invented by Jericho Brown uh, and featured prominently in his Pulitzer Prize winning collection, The Tradition, um, which was also featured in our November, December 2018 issue, uh, some of those duplexes. Uh, the duplex is a form composed of uh, seven couplets with nine to 11 syllables per line. And then the second line of each couplet is echoed in the first line of the following couplet. And the first line of the poem is also echoed in the very last line. So again, uh, a very architectural sort of construction there. Uh, and one more that we that we've touched upon um, was the golden shovel. Uh, the golden shovel. Uh, also a new form devised by Terence Hayes, uh, and one that I, that I find so fascinating uh, and have read many successful iterations of The Golden Shovel. Um, it's named for the poem that Terence Hayes wrote in this style after Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, We Real Cool. And in this kind of poem, you choose one line of a poem or another text and make every word of that line in their original sequence, the end words of a new poem. So if the line you're quoting is, say, 10 words long, you would then write a 10-line poem with each end word from your original quote, which, of course, you cite and credit the, uh, the author that you are uh, following after. So those are some of our forms today. If you want to dig in deeper and try your hand in any of these forms, please check out the show notes for this episode. We will include some links so that you can, uh, you know, read these guidelines uh, for yourself. This is Dorothy Chan reading from the January-February issue. Triple sonnet for taking the money and taking that exit. Rosebud asks me if I can just take the money and run when I tell her about the sugar daddies of Instagram TM hitting me up, taking me back to my mid-twenties in Tempe, Arizona, when all the single dads of the neighborhood would try to come into my yard, into my pool, and what is it with pools and drama in film? Is that touch of blue, David Hockney me, why don't you, a little splash? like we're lovers painting each other on canvas. And in my early 20s, I dared a much older lover to throw me against a museum wall, taking me right then and there, right then and there, right here and now, he said in the museum elevator, fade screen out. It's all buttons to push anyway. Are you cute as a button? 
Why don't you finger your femme right, drive their eyes to roll to the back of their head, 10,000 plus nerve endings. I'm always a little breathless when excited. Do you want to order the lobster? Did you know that once the lobster tails poach and the chef spreads butter on with a paintbrush, I'm ready to come? Are you the orgasm equivalent of the moment on MTV Cribs when the rapper opens the fridge and declares, this is where the magic happens? Or did he actually say that in the bedroom? What does it matter when you can have honey and syrup and whipped cream in any room you desire? Why be fire or ice when you could be steam? Would you rather bang a baller or a rapper is the question I once posed to a lover. He answered wrong. I scared the couple next to us on the elevator. Or it's the music on the elevator that makes us go round. Because baby, can you pitch and please in less than five? Or it's the music that makes us beautiful is a line from Lucy Greeley. But why fantasize about making lust atop a piano when you can make love atop piles of crisp hundred dollars from the bank? Like when Veronica brings Reggie into her bedroom on Riverdale and cue the music. She's so money. Game around recognizes game. Archie's been an idiot for 80 plus years. Why don't you take the bills and the bank and the lobster and the fridge and the vault and the moment and... In this, uh, in this episode of our podcast, we started talking a little bit about forms, about invented forms and people who, you know, are, are working in them. Um, and I originally, I, I honestly thought that the triple sonnet was your invention because I have read many of your triple sonnets and it's such a, uh, it's such a, a, a quintessential sort of mark of your, of your work. Um, but then I read Anne Carson's triple sonnet of the plush pony. Was, was that an inspiration for you or, or is this like, how did you arrive at the form? Yes, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for this opportunity and for talking to me about form today. So the triple sonnet is really my baby, and I'm going to like backtrack a little into the history. So back uh, during my undergraduate years at Cornell, I met my poetry mother and a friend that I am still extremely close to, Lyrae Van Cleef Stefanen. And Lyrae is obviously a legendary poet. And she taught us the sonnet. She introduced the sonnet to us, its history, its contemporary usage. And she talked to us about how the sonnet is like this box that we can escape. It's like this box of tension and release. And so you can think of it in dancer-like terms and even like athletic breathwork terms and also in sexual sexy terms. I started growing obsessed with the sonnet. And then when I entered grad school, both my MFA and my PhD, I decided that I needed to take these studies further. Obviously, uh, students may work in the sonnet form and the crown of sonnets form. But I thought I want something a bit more unique. And the first thing I did uh, during my PhD in a workshop was double the sonnet. And for a while, I was thinking, okay, is the double sonnet really my form? But I felt that the double wasn't enough, and it was missing that extra volta, especially considering how sonnets and a lot of form poetry are really governed by numbers. So I tripled it. And I think that it is this beautiful coincidence. Of course, I had studied Anne Carson's triple sonnet and greatly admired it. But I would also say, and I think it's important that we nod to Anne Carson for not only this, but so many other things. 
but I believe that my triple sonnet is my signature move and I've made it unique in my own special way. And one of the ways that my triple sonnet is unique, I would say, is the sawtooth margin in that every other line is indented. Sometimes we start um, with the indented line, sometimes we don't. It's kind of this thing that I feel out when I'm writing and I'm speaking my poem aloud. And so that was part of the invention. That's absolutely um, viscerally experienced for me. I mean, I, I think that that really, the triple sonnet is yours in the way that the golden shovel is Terrence Hayes and the duplex is Jericho Brown's. Like, I really think that like uh, uh, the the fullness of the experience of, of your triple sonnets is, uh, are, is so so vivid. Um, and I, and I honestly, I really hope that it engenders more triple sonnets in the world. Like, I think that like the, the example that you have set of how it creates tension and release, you know, uh, in, in symphony, uh, is really inspiring. Um, in the way that you practice it, are there more, um, are there more sort of rules, uh, to the writing of a triple sonnet other than the lineation mm-hmm. that that's like three fourteen line stanzas. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, I would like to say that. I believe that one of the reasons why the sonnet has been so enduring, well, first of all, the sonnet is such a renowned form. It's such a regal form. And it is also a poetic form that has spanned time and space, being translated into multiple languages, being used in so many languages. It's a common language in certain respects, let's say. Another signature move I like to do that also pays homage to the sonnet form and it's like origins is the conversational elements. I know that many times when I introduce the sonnet to my students, they may first have a misconception that it needs to be in the language of, let's say, Shakespeare right. or Spencer. Right. Yes. And I love to tell them, you know, guess what, though? Shakespeare's language at the time reflected the actual conversation. Right. That was his vernacular. And so ours is equally valid, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so our vernacular in, let's say, 2024, especially with how language evolves so quickly, conversational language, slang, internet speak, you know, even like language you might get from a meme or a joke online, it is is just as valid because it is literally a study of the time that we're in. And so I would say that the 10 syllabic count, or let's say the approximate 10 syllabic conversational count is key, unless I do that thing where sometimes, um, as in, let's say, triple sonnet for taking the money and taking that exit, I might add like two extra lines for like an addendum, Mm -hmm, I think. mm -hmm. Or sometimes I might have a line that's ultra- long just for contrast. Right, right. Thank you so much, Dorothy. It was such a delight to hear you read today. And I'm I'm just Thank really you. excited to share your triple sonnets with our readers. I'm and I'm so honored to be in this issue. And Elizabeth, I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. <laughs>